Uh, Exodus chapter 12, let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, you are good. May this next few moments of our lives, Lord God, speak to us. Do something in our hearts and in our minds these next few moments. That's why we're here. Father, there is no guilt and shame for the Christian, but there is conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that is we desire it as your people. We want you to lead us, to guide us, to to hammer us, to break us down, and to rebuild us in the form and fashion that is your will, in the image of your Son, Christ Jesus. It's what we desire. So be with us as we read your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Starting back up in verse 26, we made it here last week with this service, didn't make it there in first service, So, uh, but this is just where we're going to start today, and this is important because I got a lot of questions this past week from God's people saying, what do we do? You know, Francis Schaeffer had a, a great line, a whole TV pro, or you can still watch it. It's somewhere on Hulu or, or somewhere, which, by the way, just in case you look him up, he's a weird-looking dude, all right? This dude, uh, this is like in the 80s when he uh, televised this, and he's still wearing knickers. Just know he's a weird dude, but a brilliant guy, and a guy who loves Jesus and knows his Bible, but he asked the question, how then shall we live? God is good. He is gracious. He is merciful. He has brought peace into the heart and to the mind of his people. There's no more hostility. He has saved us from our sin. There has been an exodus spiritually. We have been released from our bondage to sin and death, amen, through the blood of the Lamb. That was last week. We're moving into now the actual exodus, the the actual reality of the 10th plague, and... The commandment to remember the Passover. And there's a way we should live as a result of this great deliverance in which God brings. I want to start in verse 26 because it boils everything down to the family. Last week the question is, what can we do? The reality is, many of us are already doing the work that God has called us to. By teaching and training our children in the ways of the Lord as he commands. The family is the building block of all society. When the family goes awry, society goes awry. But when families, God-fearing, biblical families, the way God created, when families work, blessing and prosperity are the result through obedience to God's commandments. Look at verse 26. Now again, Moses and Aaron have already gone to Pharaoh. They've already said, there's another plague coming. Pharaoh has already said, nope, I'm God. Uh, Yahweh, who is Yahweh? What's his name? Why should I listen to him? We're going to do it my way. And so Moses and Aaron have been rejected But Passover has been instituted. This meal where an unblemished lamb is slain, his blood on the doorpost and on the the, the lintel, the door frame of the house, distinct, 
making distinct Israel, God's people, from everybody else. And this meal that is a memorial that God's people are to remember, there's a role for even children in this memorial. In fact, from Jewish Midrash, it is the first public speaking that a child makes in the Jewish family. As the lamb is slain, as the meat is roasted and the bitter herbs and, and the hyssop and everything that goes along with the Passover cedar meal, which Jews still practice today, God-fearing and secular Jews still practice today as a memorial. Children are to ask, what do the... Look at verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean... By this earth. What does this mean? What is the lamb? What is the herbs? What is the, the roasting? What is, I mean, everything is detailed on this cedar meal. What does this mean, this Pesach, this uh, Passover? What does it mean? Children are to ask. Did you know questions are an incredible way to learn? Did you know that Jesus in the New Testament speaks more in questions than he does in statements? In the Jewish mind, questions are a way to show a grasping of information. Questions are important. And children are to ask questions. What does this mean? Family is important to God. He begins the Bible with a marriage. All of Scripture is instruction for Families who are trying to honor and follow God, moms and dads trying to raise children in the ways and the knowledge of the Lord. We see it here in Exodus. The Passover is a memorial for families to engage together in the ways and the plans and the will of God. Why is this important? Now listen, I'm fixing to give you some statistics. And these statistics come from census.gov. The CDC, because you can trust everything the CDC says, right? Uh, Pew Research Group and, and Barna, uh, Gallup, not Barna, Gallup. So these are, these are trusted resources in our world. Truth is truth, whether we like it or not. This is not for any guilt and shame, because we have lots of bad things happen in life. Divorce happens, uh, single parenting happens, or there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things, struggles in human life. This is not for guilt and shame. This is for conviction, because our world has made a shift, and the shift is away from family. It's the destruction of the nuclear family as God has designed. We turn on the news, and we look around our world, and we scratch our heads going, what is going on? It is the reality of the breakdown. There can be no society that is fruitful and flourishing without strong family. I had an awesome conversation with my kids. We were sitting down. Uh, we started First Kings a couple weeks ago uh, in our family devotions. Uh, if you know anything about First Kings, it's the death of David and bringing in Solomon and all the kings after the, 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 you know, the kingdom breaking apart under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Blah, 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 blah. A, lot, a lot of stuff in Kings. But David is the great warrior poet king. And he's passing his crown. One of the older uh, sons of David tries to steal the crown in chapter 1. 
Uh, but David in his dying breath named Solomon the king, and he's given Solomon his last words. Who doesn't want to hear the words of a dying king who has united the kingdom, conquered all of Israel's enemies, and, and built a foundation, a, a glory period for Israel? We want to hear what this dying king says to his son who's becoming king, and he tells Solomon, Obey the Lord, all of his commands, all of his statutes. These are the final words of a dying king. Obey the Lord. Do what he says. And one of my, and I, I started talking to my family about, you know, when we do what God says, there's blessing, there's curses. You can be a Christian saved by grace. And live beneath the station in which God has placed you in this world. That is reality. Because sin has consequences. And sin brings curses into our life. We honor God by obeying his word. And that brings blessing. David knew this. He told Solomon, follow everything God says that you will be Blessed sin brings doing things our way instead of God's way brings curses. And so we started talking about our world and, and curses uh, that exist because of disobedience. We started talking about family. And we started talking about nations. And one of my kids says, what about China? They're communists and godless. And they got more money than anybody. You know we're all going to be speaking Mandarin in like two years. No? Okay. Right? China's killing it. And so we started talking about even secular godless people who obey God's commands reap the benefits of God's commands. You want to know about Asian communities, China, Japan? You want to know about these Asian communities? They are built on strong Family units, moms and dads are honored and respected. They still arrange marriages over there. And dads in the room say, praise God, amen. <laughs> right? Family is a big deal. Here's where we've been in our country. A few statistics. In 1960, single Persons living alone without family was 13% of the country. Do you know what it is today in 2021? 28% of the country lives by themselves, no family. 28%. That's more than one in four households in this country lives alone. You want to know where the widespread perversion that exists in our country comes from? It comes, God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. One in four of our households alone. I don't know if you heard about, I almost said this last week, but it, it didn't make the, the little diatribe. But Pizza Hut last week, pitched a book. You know, back in the 80s, they started the read a book program. We'll give you a free personal pan pizza. That's good marketing. Amen. That's American. You get free pizza if you read a book. (laughs) Pro education, right? Well, the book they pushed a couple weeks ago to children ages five to eight 
is a book called Bigwig. It's a book about a little boy who learns to dress up like a woman and in dressing up like a woman in drag finds his superpower. Whatever suit in corpora, corporate pizza, guarantee you that dude's gay or lives alone. Because that's where this stuff comes from. More than one in four of our households alone, no family. In 1947, the median age to marry, for men it was 23, for women it was 20. Median age to marry today, men is 30, women is 28. We have extended adolescence into almost middle age. Hebrews, you became a man at 13. You were married 14, 15 years old, starting a family. Family brings responsibility. Dads, next week's Father's Day, not going to blister you. We're going to celebrate next week. Today, you're going to get it. Nineteen sixty-seven, and this is not—I'm not saying anything about working moms. Proverbs thirty talks about the 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 woman of God. She wakes up early. She goes to the temple gates to sell her wares. There's nothing wrong with a woman working, but I, I need you to notice in nineteen sixty-seven, kids who had a stay-at-home mom, forty-eight percent of the country had a stay-at-home mom in the late sixties. Forty-eight percent today, two thousand twenty-one. 24% of kids 15 and under have a mom at home when they come home. Let me ask you a question. Are things better or are things worse? That is the correct answer. <laughs> the breakdown of the family. Look at this chart. This is from the CDC, so you can trust it. <laughs> Look at where we were in 1940. Less than 20% of children were born into a home without a mom and a dad. Most families were nuclear families. The way God designed mom, dad, having children, gospel fruitfulness in the world, whether they were Christian or not, they were doing things God's way. Less than 20% grew up with only one parent. Look where we're at today. Now look at Asia down there. Asians, still less than 20% as of 2010. Why are they growing? Why are they flourishing? Why are they prospering? Strong families. The way that God designed. Look at where we're at. You want to know why the nonsense, why the world's on fire. Why Supreme Court justices are being attacked in their own homes. By the way, it's like no news is even reporting that. They're still talking about January 6th riot. Look at where we're at. Break down. Listen, what can we do, Brent? Some of you, you're already doing it. Dads, just being present is half the battle. And you know, I just don't know what to do. You know more than you think you do. You know how to teach your children what a boy is and what a girl is and what natural a family should look like and what brings blessing and prosperity. 
We've got to get back to what God says. Praise God for salvation. But there's something to be said for obeying the word of the Lord at the same time. It's time for Christian men, Christian women, Christian families to stop living beneath in the curses of disobedience, but to to be saved by God's grace and his work and follow him in obedience, which leads to blessing. It's really hard to argue with a flourishing, prosperous blessing of obedience to God's word. There's a way this works. Let's look now in further into the text. Verse 29. Back in Egypt, 10th plague. It's been prophesied. It's coming to pass here. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. No one in Egypt escaped the wrath of God. The only distinction made amongst peoples were those covered by the blood of the Lamb. God made a distinction between His people covered by the blood of the Lamb and everyone else, everybody, regardless of their station, the wealthy, those in charge, on the throne, and even the lowest of the lowest of the low in Egypt. No one escaped the wrath of God in any of these plagues. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Now picture this scene. After midnight, it's late, dark out, no street lights in Egypt. It's dark. And all of a sudden, a woman begins to wail and mourn because she's woken up. She's checked on her children, and she's found her eldest is dead. And her cry begins to ring out, and others begin to wake up. What is going on? What has happened? And they check on their kids, and another mother begins to wail. And then another, and then another. And even from the palace, as Pharaoh gets up at this wailing that he hears as mother and father join mother and father in mourning their death of their eldest, their firstborn. Now again, chapter 1 of Exodus Pharaoh's trying to kill the children of Israel. But it is the children of Egypt that suffer from the wickedness and the sin of Pharaoh and his people. More mothers, more fathers, even Pharaoh's own family. As they are upset by being woken by the cries of their city. But they find, as they check on their children, they are not spared from the wrath of God. Their firstborn also has died. There is a great cry in Egypt because there's not a house where someone is not dead. Listen, what has been will be. What is old will be new. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 5 through 10. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to put it on the screen. We went to Revelation last week. But what I love about 
the Thessalonian letters. They are didactic, imperative letters. They are not apocalyptic literature like Revelation, which is symbols and poetry, and, and right, you can make it, you can kind of uh, go a lot of different directions with apocalyptic literature. This is didactic, imperative literature. You got to do something with this. You read it like you read Romans. You read it like you read 1 Corinthians. Commands, do this, don't do that. Here's what's happening. God says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, this is evidence. Because again, and I, I keep saying this because the plagues are, plagues are hard to deal with when we're reading our Bible. And there's so many who have no understanding of the nature of God or who God is. And they're going to try to judge God based on their standards. But the reality is, God, everything he does is right. Even his wrath being poured out on Egypt is good, holy, and just. This is evidence of the righteous it's not unrighteous, it's not unjust, it's the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. The people in Thessalonica were suffering greatly because they believed in Jesus. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just, it is right to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Remember the bitter herbs symbolize the harsh reality of bondage that God's people were afflicted with in Egypt. Verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels at the second coming in flaming fire. Exactly the way that end of Revelation uh, dictates Jesus' return. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Here's one thing you got to put into your eschatological pipe. When Christ returns, judgment of the unrighteous comes with him. Not only the, the glorification and the salvation of his people, occur at his return, but the immediate judgment of the unrighteous to eternal destruction. Look at verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal forever. Eternity's a long time. Destruction's away from the presence of the Lord. You can't really escape the presence of the Lord in all things he's created. He is there. That's why David said, even if I've made my bed in hell, there you will Find me, but this is this is a departure of the grace of God for eternity. No opportunities of repentance. No, no God coming with His convicting Holy Spirit, bringing us to Himself completely away from the grace of God for all eternity in a place known as the Lake of Fire. It has happened, and it will happen again. And God is just to bring about his wrath upon the unrighteous. That's why today is the day of salvation. There is a lamb that has been slain. Make sure his blood covers the doors of your home. Amen. Israel is in great mourning, a great cry. Because there's not a house where someone is not dead. Verse 31. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, 
Go out from among my people, both you and the people Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. This is Pharaoh talking. Finally, after a tenth plague, Pharaoh is so broken and is willing to concede defeat. My way is not working. We're, who is this Yahweh? Now I know I am the Lord. Now I know who Yahweh is. And I concede, Pharaoh says. And he sends God's people out in haste. Why did they eat the Passover with staffs and with belts fastened and everything packed up and with their sandals on? Because when God moves, you got to be ready. Pharaoh said, no, 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 no. Get out of here. It's time. And Pharaoh even asks, look at verse 32. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. I finally realize who you have dismantled. Yahweh has dismantled all the gods in which I have trusted. God has dismantled all the Egyptian values that I have lived by. God has even dismantled, Yahweh has dismantled even my own throne. I have no power. I concede. I have no power the, like I thought I had. Only Yahweh has power to bless. So leave and pray for me. Because Pharaoh has been destroyed by his disobedience to Yahweh, God, creator of the universe. It makes babies cry, I know. It is harsh reality what the unrighteous and the ungodly that they rightly deserve will get. Verse 33, the Exodus. The Egyptians were urgent. It's not just Pharaoh saying, get out of here. Remember, the people since the plague seven have been begging Pharaoh where Egypt is ruined. His own, uh, his own magicians and wise men couldn't stand any longer in the presence of Moses and Aaron. The people are thankful that their Pharaoh finally get these people out. And what do they do? They don't start a government program, but they... <laughs> Thank you. Because government programs never work. God is a God of... People freely giving, not being forced to give. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead if you don't get out of here. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls, being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. Uh, they were ready to go. They asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So not only are God's people leaving their bondage, but they're leaving with their pockets fat in gold and silver out to the land in which God is taking them. God always takes care of his people. And just spoiler alert, we're going to get there. What do God's people use this newfound wealth on? Idolatry. We're the worst. Just so you know. And you're part of it. We are the worst. Constantly unfaithful. But God, by his grace, is faithful to his unfaithful people. Amen? He constantly, through his prophets, and now through his word, 
convicts us of our sin, calls us back, and covers. If we, uh, if we uh, confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. This is the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. Both are sinners, all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The only difference between us and the unrighteous who will suffer God's wrath is a convicting power of the Holy Spirit bringing us to repentance. We're the ones who say we're sorry and we turn from our sin and we return to a faithful God who loves and offers grace, mercy, and peace. No more hostility between God and man. Peace in the gospel through the blood of the Lamb. Amen? They send them out with wealth in their pockets. Verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Where do we get the number for the amount of people who left Egypt in the Exodus? How do we know that Moses led a couple million people through the wilderness to a promised land flowing with milk and honey? We get it right here in Exodus chapter 12. 600,000 men. You add wives, you add children, you get somewhere, you get at least 2 million people. Some estimate uh, closer to 3 million people Moses is leading by God's grace across the desert. A mixed multitude, verse 38, also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. God's people were not the only ones that left in the Exodus. Many Egyptians, many foreigners living amongst uh, the Egyptians in that, in that great land of opportunity in that day and in that age, that great economy in that day and in that age. Many people left, I mean, after ten plagues. Remember what God told Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. In fact, I'm going to make a lot of nations. A lot of nations are going to come out of uh, your lineage. All nations will be blessed, God said, through you in Genesis and we see, even in the Old Testament, people uh, trusting and believing in Yahweh, creator God, instead of the gods that have been dismantled by him. Many leave with them to journey to this land that flows with milk and with honey. Verse 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough. They had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Again, the unleavened bread symbolizing sin, which leads to death. God wants life for his people, not death. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. We think God is slow, but God is not slow. He is patient, not willing that any should perish. When we anxiously await, most of us in this room are, are come now, Lord Jesus. Even so, come now. We're ready for this great salvation that we will see at the second coming of Christ. Why doesn't he come Because God is long-suffering. He is patient with the unrepentant and with the sinner. Not wanting to... Hell was not created for men and women. It was created for Lucifer, Satan, and the fallen angels. 
Only those who follow Satan, the fallen angel, will, will suffer Gehenna, that lake of fire that was created for Lucifer. God is patient, waiting for those to come to repentance that he has called. Verse 41, at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept by the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. A memorial. The Exodus, now we, we get back into the Passover meal, which were the institution of the Passover. It is a memorial of God delivering his people through the blood of the Lamb. The, God's wrath passes over those covered by the blood. And they are delivered physically in Exodus from physical bondage as we spiritually are freed from the bondage of sin and death through the blood of our unblemished spotless lamb king jesus god who became flesh and dwelt among us living the perfect life dying in our place for our sin his blood makes a distinction between us and the unrighteous the sheep from the goats this is the institution of the past. This is what God says now. Remember this day. Remember how I passed over you, bringing deliverance from bondage to you. Verse 43 through 51, let's read it quickly. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute. This is written in stone and cannot be changed of the Passover, my making a distinction between you and Egypt through the blood of the unblemished lamb. No foreigner shall eat of this. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. We're going to talk more about slavery in a little bit, a few chapters. God gives some commands. Know this, though. When we talk about slavery, we talk about it from a very specific context in which everyone thinks about. But slavery has been around for a lot longer than a couple hundred years and certainly a lot longer than the new world was founded. Every generation, every people group, every continent has suffered. God never condones slavery but does speak into a world in which slavery exists. And we've got to talk about that. It's never God's plan or design, but it has been since Adam and Eve in the Garden Genesis throughout all of history. Slavery, right now, today, some 27 million people are enslaved in this world, mostly women and children. Today, right now, why does slavery exist? Because men are wicked. Nations are wicked. Verse 45, no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, travel with you, would keep the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised. Underline that. Pastor Jeremy a few weeks ago uh, taught us about circumcision. The cutting off of the flesh. What makes God's people different from everybody else? The flesh is taken from them. They are led by God's spirit, not their flesh. Then he may come near and keep it. 
He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of this Passover meal. In the remembrance of God saving his people from bondage, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel, underline this, did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So the death angel comes. All the firstborn of Egypt is slain in the wrath of God. Israel is saved and Pharaoh and all the Egyptians unload their pockets, giving gold and silver to God's people, saying, please get out of here and go serve your Lord. And some of them even went with them. But anyone who was commanded to remember God's deliverance was to be circumcised. Why? Because circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Only those part of the covenant were allowed to remember this Passover meal being covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, we don't live in Old Testament times any longer. We live in a new covenant that has brought forth by God in flesh, Jesus Christ. In this covenant, we are given signs. Just like the Old Testament people had circumcision, we have been given baptism and we have been given the Lord's Supper. These things do not save us but they remind us of what Christ Jesus has done. No longer through a circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Look how verse 12 ties this new circumcision into baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism. Why do we still get a little kiddie pool, fill it full of water, and, I mean, this is what we do as kids in pools. We dunk people. That's what the word baptizo means in the Greek. It means to immerse, to fully submerge. That's why the sprinkling thing just doesn't fly in a New Testament hermeneutic. It means to, right, when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. He did, they didn't, John the Baptist, <laughs> all right, badoosh. Why do we still do it? Because it is this new covenant which Christ has made with us. And most of you are like, well, Brent, I'm circumcised. Yeah, because we're clean people. <laughs> It's for cleanliness that we still circumcise kids. It's no longer part of a covenant. There's a new covenant in the blood of Christ. We are baptized. We go down be representing Jesus. We into the earth dying in our place for our sins. Our sins are into the ground. We go down into the water, but we are raised up as Christ was raised from death, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. We have been washed clean of our sins through baptism. Now, again, baptism doesn't save us. It's simply an outward expression of an inward reality. But baptism reminds us of this new covenant. And it's why we still do it today. Dead with Christ, our sins buried. We are raised anew in new life in Christ Jesus. If you have not been baptized as a believer, I encourage you, participate in this great work of Christ 
and his New Testament people. But also the Lord's, our Passover. We, the Lord's table is a reconstruction of an old memorial from an old covenant given to us in a new way through a new covenant. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And by the way, I'm going to read this out of my Bible because I love my Bible. We're going to study 1 Corinthians next year. We're going to get through Exodus this year, the last for Advent. We're going to study the seven churches of Revelation. We're going to have our vision series in January like we always do. Then we're going to start 1 Corinthians. We get to talk about sexual immorality. We get to talk about uh, Christians suing one another. We get to talk about people getting drunk off communion wine. I mean, it's crazy. The Corinthian church, it's going to be awesome. We get to talk about tongues and prophecy and spiritual gifts. Woo! I'm excited. It's going to be fun. We need, we need God's word, amen? We're going to talk about head coverings in chapter 11, but not today. Next year. Go down to verse 23. But just, but just notice this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when we come together to participate in the Lord's Supper. In verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, verse uh, 33, verse 34. Five times in this chapter, it talks about when we come together. That phrase is used. God's people are made to come together the way that we do. Christianity, you can't do it by yourself. Christianity is a, right, we live in this individualized world. Part of our problem is how individualized we have become. It's all about me, my truth. That's why we get all this weird nonsense in our world because where does it end? Where does our truth end? It's ongoing forever until we destroy this nation that God has given us. It's not about our truth, it's about his truth. His truth becomes evident to us when we come together and participate in baptism and in the Lord's Supper together as his Gathered people. It's what ecclesia means. The church. The gathered together people of God. We are made to be together. Praise God for technology. Praise God for everybody watching. But we are made to be together in this moment. How many of you know it's different here than it is watching on TV? It's different. We're made for this. When you come together, the Lord's table... The Lord's table, just like in Exodus, there's a physical element. They were physically delivered from their bondage. We physically take that bread. We physically take that cup. And we're going to do communion next week. So be meditating on this. We physically eat and drink. Because God is doing a physical work in us. But also intellectually, mentally, we are meditating on what our blood of the Lamb, our Christ, our Savior, Jesus, what He has done for us. It's to be in our minds. We are to meditate upon His work of salvation. But also there is a, not only a mental, not only a physical, there is a spiritual element as, as we participate in this. 2,000 years ago, Christ gave His life for us. But we participate in the body and blood of the Lord through the Lord's table, this new covenant. 
It's how we are obedient to the commands of God as we come to His body and His blood. Look at verse 23 with me quickly. For I received from the Lord what I also... I'm not making this up. Paul says this all the time. This isn't Paul. This is what God has given me to give to you. It's what our Bible is. It's God's Word given to us through human servants. That the Lord Jesus on the night He was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're not remembering a physical exodus from Egypt any longer. We are remembering our exodus from sin, from shame, from guilt, from death. In Christ Jesus, his body and his blood. Verse 25, in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What can we do? We can remember Christ as he has called us to remember him through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, and through Christian family. Listen, watch this. We started this sermon off by talking about bringing our children, answering their questions as to what these things mean. This is our role right now in this world to be God's people, living as God dictates. What happens if we don't? We already know the answer to that. Look at verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread, be th next week, we're going to do this together. Think on these things. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. God has a way in which we are to do things. And we can be saved by the work of God, but we can be, live beneath His blessings that He gives His people through our own disobedience, which is why we need to examine ourselves as we come to the table, God's table, as we come to His flesh, His blood, our lamb, unblemished, slain for us by God's grace. We are saved through His work. We belong to Him. Heaven is our home. But there is a way in how then shall we live if statistics are true, and I hope they are not, I don't believe they are true here. Because you are a people that love Jesus and fear God. But if statistics are true, seven out of every ten men in this room looked at something on the internet they shouldn't have looked at this last week. Let us examine ourselves. What can we do? The world's on fire. We can be God's People obeying God's commands and seeing together strong families in Christ making a difference in this world. This is why C.S. Lewis, this is why J.R.R. Tolkien, it's why they wrote, you know, both those guys were in World War I. 
They both experienced the, the hardship and the suffering and the bitterness of war, which is why they wrote about the weakest of these. They realized through the great war that it was simply just being God's people. It's the simple hobbit from the Shire that can change everything, not by climbing a mountain or slaying a dragon, but by simply being we are called by God to, they did, the last verse of chapter, and they did everything that God commanded them. And it changed everything. We are called as God's people to remember this great memorial, this great Passover, this great exodus from bondage through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what did, what's our... What do we do as families together? Not only do we evangelize, not only do we proclaim the gospel, but we teach everything that the Lord commands. That's our commission, to dis make disciples. How do you make disciples? It, doesn't, it begins at salvation, but maturity comes through living according to God's ways. And that's also where blessing and flourishing comes for all God's people and even for the societies in which we live. Just like the hobbit, man of God, woman of God, transformer, we are more than meets the eye. <laughs> We are the visible temple of God in this world. It is hard to argue against reality. May this world see the reality of relationship with God and his salvation in our lives as men, in our lives as women, in our lives as God-fearing families. It will, it has, and it will change everything. Let's pray. Father, only you are good. Forgive us our sins. Father, may there be no guilt or shame in this room, but may there be the conviction of the Holy Spirit drawing us bringing us forward into obedience that comes from a fear, a right, just fear of God that we should have as your people. The power of life and death is at your command. May we honor you. May we love you. May we be loved by you. And may we live in the fear of God that brings obedience to your commands. And also the blessing that comes with that obedience. It is in Jesus' name. And every Christian said, amen.